Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're very fortunate to have one of our own presenting today, Dr. Susan Yuditskaya, and I'm pleased to welcome um, Rich Comey, Professor of Medicine and the Section Chief of Endocrinology and Metabolism, to introduce her. Hi, well, good morning, and uh, it's really nice to see a nice turnout on school vacation week. Um, so I'm delighted to have uh, as our speaker today one of our new faculty members, Susan Yuditskaya. This May way serves as her introduction to the broader community of, uh, of DHMC. So Susan graduated from MIT in 2001. This means I have a mathematic expert who can explain the new compensation plan when it comes out. <laughs> so, um, she actually went to the University of Pittsburgh for uh, medical school. And uh, actually, while in, the, while in medical school, did a year of research at the uh, an NIH program. So she showed an interest in research very early on in her career. She then was a uh, resident at the University of Pittsburgh from 2000 to 2009, and then was a fellow at the, Endoc uh, at the Endocrine Fellowship at the NIH until uh, uh, she came here, actually, uh, last year. So she is certified in internal medicine and in endocrinology, and she has had uh, a number of research interests. In the past, she was interested in proteome analysis and sickle cell anemia, but at uh, the NIH, her work was really mainly in uh, what's called a minimal model of hyper uh, hypoinsulinemic euglycemic clamps, which is kind of an esoteric but very important field in endocrinology where they study insulin sensitivity. And her interest was actually in ethnic variation in insulin sensitivity. Um, since coming here, she sort of jumped right in and immediately taught PBL for the fall term uh, and got a nomination for excellence in teaching uh, for that. She's been very active in our endocrine fellowship as a teacher, very active in the SBM course in endocrinology as a teacher as well, as a small group leader. So um, I hope everyone will welcome her for her first grand rounds here on the clinical aspects of our newest uh, diabetes agent. Thanks. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Comey, for such a nice introduction. Um, and it's uh, an honor to be here, and I'm very excited to talk to you today about uh, an, a fairly new class of diabetes medication that uh, we're finding quite useful in the clinic. Uh, they're called SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and today's talk isn't meant to be a comprehensive overview. Um, we only, fortunately, have a little bit less than an hour. So uh, I, I intended with this talk to uh, touch on some key uh, major points about um, the SGLT2 inhibitors. So um, first of all, I have no disclosures. Um, and discussion on SGLT2 inhibitors, um, a good place to start uh, would be to kind of review um, the glucose uh, homeostasis in the kidney. Um, so uh, in normal glycemic individuals, um, the mean plasma glucose is about 100, um, and the mean GFR is about 125. Um, this means that somewhere between 160 and 180 grams of glucose is filtered um, daily by the kidneys. Um, just about all of it is reabsorbed back into the circulation, and this happens in the proximal tubule. Um, and the, the maximum capacity of the transport mechanism of glucose um, is uh, around 430 uh, grams to 500 grams, uh, depending on gender. And this is, of course, assuming normal renal function. Uh, hyperglycemia increases the amount of filtered glucose, um, and uh, this maximum tr renal transport capacity can actually increase by 20% in diabetics, up to um, as high as 500 to 600 grams per day. Um, and this maximum capacity is reached at about a blood glucose of 180 to 216. Um, beyond that threshold, um, you start having um, a linear increase in glucosuria. And I, I'm going to have a slide later that kind of touches on this, demonstrates this more clearly. Um, so what is it that uh, reabsorbs this glucose back into the circulation? It's the sodium glucose transport. Um, so in the kidney, uh, there are two uh, different uh, sodium glucose transporters. There's... Oops. What just happened? Okay. Um, there's the SGLT2 transporter and the SGLT1 transporter. 
Um, the SGLT2 transporter um, handles the bulk of this um, glucose transport. It's located in the proximal um, aspect of the proximal tubule, which is the S1 segment. And now, um, is this a pointer? Okay. That is around here. Let me just use this pointer here. <laughs> So that, that's located over here. Uh, and um, the expression of this transport is upregulated in diabetes as well as with uh, SGLT2 inhibition. The SGLT1 transporter handles um, ten, the rest of the 10% of the fi filtered glucose, uh, and it's um, located on the distal aspect of the proximal tubule. And so that would be around here. Um, and so the interesting thing with this one is, so the expression is downregulated in diabetes and SGLT2 inhibition, but um, there's a compensatory increase in function by about 40 to 50 percent uh, with SGLT2 inhibition. Um, so uh, where else are these sodium glucose transporters located? Um, so SGLT1, uh, besides uh, the proximal tubule, it also happens to be on the enterocytes of the small bowel. Um, and uh, they're located on uh, some, uh, some other types of cells like L cells, but also on K cells, which happen to be um, enteroendocrine cells, which um, also secrete uh, incretins, including GLP-1. And if, uh, if you guys have heard of uh, Victoza or Bayetta, um, so that, the, those are GLP-1 agonists, which are uh, another class of diabetes medication that, that is quite potent. Um, so just an interesting factoid to keep in mind. And also present on liver and lung. SGLT2, um, besides the proximal uh, segment of the um, proximal tubule, um, were recently found to be on uh, pancreatic alpha cells, and I'll t talk more about that later. Uh, and um, there's actually a whole family of sodium glucose transporters, some of which uh, functions aren't, aren't completely elucidated yet. Um, but um, I, I just wanted to point out a couple things here. That SGLT2 is also happens to be on the liver, muscle, and heart. Um, and that was the main thing I wanted to point out here. So um, the way the transporters work, so um, let me focus on the SGLT2 tr transporter. So uh, glucose gets transported uh, with sodium from the lumen of the renal tubule uh, into the uh, proximal renal tubule um, tubular cell. Uh, and then uh, the glucose uh, goes through the GLUT2 transporter back into the blood. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the SGL2 inhibitor. Um, so uh, way back in 1836, uh, there was a, 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 an agent called fluorescin that was isolated from the bark of the apple tree. Um, many years later, uh, it turned out this was a non-selective SGLT1 and SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, but before this was even uh, known, um, uh, von Meering had um, used this used fluorescein to demonstrate a glucose a glucosuric effect in dogs, and these dogs uh, ended up uh, losing weight, and it seemed to simulate diabetes. <laughs> so uh, at first, it was thought that fluorescein kind of provided a, a good model to research diabetes. Um, so uh, in 1933, um, fluorism was shown, uh, the glucosuria was, was shown in humans. Uh, and then uh, later on, they kind of started elucidating the kinetics and um, all of that. Um, and uh, later on, you know, the SGLT1, SGLT2 uh, were cloned and, uh, and and then in 1987, fluorescein was shown to reverse glucose toxicity in rodents. And that's what I'm going to talk about next. So before I get to that, so fluorescein, that's the chemical structure. And if you notice, there's this glucose moiety um, right here. Uh, 
and essentially this gives it um, 2,000 to 3,000 uh, times more affinity for the SGLT1 and SGLT2 uh, receptors than glucose. Um, unfortunately, uh, this, uh, this medication um, could only be given parenterally because um, it's very susceptible to beta-glucosidase and so couldn't be absorbed orally. So in 1987, um, Rossetti and DeFranzo uh, uh, studied fluorescein in diabetic rats. They took 90% pancreatectomized rats, um, which, and so these rats were hyperglycemic, um, partially insulin deficient, and also insulin resistant. Um, so they gave them a fluorescein, and it n normalized their fasting and postprandial hyperglycemia and reversed their insulin resistance. And it also corrected defects in their insulin secretion um, and when, when they uh, went ahead and discontinued the fluorescein, all of their diabetes problems came back. Um, oh. And so this essentially was the first demonstration of glucose toxicity. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, um, glu glucose toxicity refers to the phenomenon of dysfunction of the pancreatic beta cell due to the direct effects of um, severe hyperglycemia. Um, additionally, uh, more uh, clinical relevance uh, is apparent uh, f for a dysfunction of, of uh, the glucose transporters, the sodium glucose transporters, through uh, endogenous human mutations. So uh, the SGLT1 mutations exist in the form of um, glucose-galactose malabsorption, uh, which is rare, and it manifests in infancy. Um, it has... Uh, no glucosuria involved, but there's a lot of intestinal malabsorption of um, glucose and galactose. So uh, these babies end up getting severe diarrhea and dehydration um, as soon as they start, you know, bottle feeding, uh, breastfeeding. Um, SGLT2 mutations exist in the form of uh, familial uh, renal glucosuria, which is also autosomal recessive. And um, it basically gives a persistent glucosuria. Um, so for heterozygous people, uh, it can be less than 10 grams of glucose per day. If they're homozygous, it can be as much as 120 grams per day. And they actually don't have any other complications uh, unless they're exposed to extreme conditions like starvation. And they don't even get UTIs. Um, and if they don't get any intestinal symptoms. Um, so, uh, so to make a clinically practical SGLT2 inhibition, um, there needs to be increased uh, oral bioavailability and half-life. Um, so basically, this uh, oxygen right here is the part that was susceptible to beta-glucosidase, and so that needed to go. Um, and that, uh, you know, uh, an increased half-life would also provide for convenient dosing, so such as once daily that a patient could feasibly take. Also, because of the, um, the known GI effects of SGLT1 inhibition, um, it, it, it was thought to be a good idea to make um, this medication SGLT2 selective. And then um, to have uh, a renal effect, um, there needs to be some renal clearance of unaltered drug to exert that uh, renal effect in the tubules. Um, so uh, since 2012, uh, we've uh, had three uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. Is part of my uh, slide off the screen? Sorry about that. Um, uh, th three SGLT2 inhibitors um, approved in the United States. The first was canagliflozin, or Invokana by its brand name. Um, it uh, exists in a 100 milligram form and a 300 milligram form, and it, it can um, it can uh, help excrete up to 119 grams of glucose per day. And you can see there that you're missing that um, that uh, oxygen moiety right there. So. They got rid of that. Um, Dapagliflozin was the next one in January 2014, uh, and it exists in a 5-milligram and 10-milligram form, and 
and uh, people excrete up to 70 grams of glucose per day with that one. And then ampaglifosin is the newest one. Um, exists in a 10 milligram and 25 milligram form. And uh, that one happens to be the most highly selective for SGLT2. Um, and then uh, Japan also has a few SGLT2 inhibitors in the market. And then there's uh, kind of a new one, a, a few new ones that are in development. Um, so here, uh, uh, speaking of the SGLT2 selectivity, I just wanted to point out that uh, not all of the SGLT2 inhibitors are the same with respect to the SGLT2 selectivity. Um, however, they are the same. Uh, they are quite similar uh, in regards to their uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. Uh, they have about a, a half-life of uh, 10 to 13 hours um, and uh, Tmax of 1 to 2 hours, um, approximately the same bioavailability. Uh, they're metabolized both uh, uh, through hepatic glucuronidation, and 33% um, is excreted uh, by the kidneys, and that is the therapeutic uh, drug, for, at least for the, for the renal tubule aspect of it. Um, so here's where I wanted to talk more in detail about um, how, how this happens. So, uh, first of all, here's the filtered glucose tracing. So uh, let me just point out that on the x-axis, you have your blood glucose level, and then the tracings show you know, when each um, phenomenon happens. So uh, the, the filtered glucose is increasing linearly um, in, in the tubule. And then uh, without the SGLT2 in, in, inhibition just at baseline, uh, you have your uh, glucose reabsorption um, that is happening uh, through the uh, SGLT2 uh, receptor uh, back into the blood. Uh, this is this tracing right here. Uh, and then the glucosuria, uh, as it appears based on the blood glucose level uh, on this tracing right here. So you see uh, here that um, the uh, glucose in the urine starts uh, appearing at about uh, a blood glucose of 150, uh, and then uh, the part, the the, um, the blood glucose just before uh, the linear increase in glucosuria happens is about 240, and that would be the saturation threshold. Um, and so here's the linear portion. So when you um, start inhibiting the SGLT2 receptors. Uh, you get a, a shift um, to a lower uh, blood glucose level for when these things happen. So, so um, now you have uh, an appearance threshold around 90 and a saturation threshold now around, um, so here, here's where the linear increase starts happening. So now it's about 140, 150 um, with the SGLT2 inhibitor. So, um, so with SGLT2 inhibition, glucosuria is linear above about a plasma glucose of 150. So this brings up two, uh, two points. First of all, there's a low risk of hypoglycemia with SGLT2 inhibitors. And also, um, the impact on the a hemoglobin A1C will depend on the baseline A1C because um, the uh, really the the difference will depend on how high they start out with, because whatever they start out with, they're going to pee out down to a blood glucose of 150. So um, they've been seen in studies to uh, reduce the A1C by 0.5% to 1.5% uh, when starting at you know, the respective um, A1C levels. And this is, we're only talking about an A1C of 8.5. It could be more uh, with a higher A1C. Um, the diabetic effect is actually more than just related to the glucosuria. So um, there, there are actually two, two studies, two key studies that I wanted to show that uh, demonstrated improvement in uh, insulin sensitivity and beta cell responsiveness. Um, so both of these studies were randomized controlled, uh, uh, double-blind placebo-controlled studies of um, type 2 diabetics that were inadequately controlled with metformin. 
Um, and they were given uh, dapagliflozin uh, for you know the respective times there. And um, they de they, uh, in both studies, there was uh, a demonstration of increased uh, glucose uh, tissue disposal through hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamps, which is the gold standard for a measurement of um, tissue um, insulin sensitivity. Um, additionally, in, in the um, first study there, they did FSI VGTTs, which is a frequently sampled IV glucose tolerance test. Um, so the, the, the first phase insulin response uh, was actually improved with the uh, depagliflozin, and that reflects improved beta cell function, which is similar to what was found with uh, fluorescein. Um, and and in, in these graphs you can see, so this is the uh, glu glucose disposal from the clamp in, in this study, and you can see that dapagliflozin um, increased the glucose disposal here and the tissue glucose uptake. Uh, in another study, um, empagliflozin was studied uh, both in an acute setting uh, with one dose and in a chronic setting uh, with four weeks of daily dosing. And the patients were given a mixed meal test. Um, and so um, there are multiple findings that I'm going to talk about from this study. But uh, first of all, they found a higher insulin secretion rate for a given plasma glucose concentration. Um, and uh, in the study, they also found an increase in GLP-1 in response to a mixed meal. Um, and, but this effect was actually um, attenuated uh, after chronic exposure to the SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, being that you're, you're peeing out um, all this glucose, you're basically losing 200 to 300 kilocalories per day. Um, so this begs the question, is there a weight loss effect? Um, so uh, uh, Bolander uh, uh, in 2014 uh, did a randomized double-blind control, placebo-controlled study um, and, and demonstrated that uh, there was actually a to total body weight a decrease with um, dapagliflozin. Uh, amounting to about four kilos, uh, and that actually is congruent with what our experience in the clinic has shown, where we see about four kilos worth of um, weight lost by patients who are started on SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, the waist circumference was also observed to decrease. Uh, and um, DEXA body composition analysis uh, demonstrated that this weight loss uh, uh, appears to be related to um, uh, loss of fat mass uh, uh, for the most part. So the, the yellow is the fat mass, but you also lose some lean tissue mass, but mostly fat mass. Um, So sorry. Um, so uh, so this could potentially be explained by um, an observed shift of substrate utilization from carbohydrates to to fat within the body, and this is known to be an expected physiologic uh, response to glucosuria in general. Um, so uh, so uh, let me just point out here. Um, so the green is with the chronic dosing of the empagliflozin. And it was significantly higher, both in the acute setting and the chronic setting, than the, the baseline um, free fatty acid levels. So, um, so another observation that, that was made um, that is related to uh, uh, several of these findings was an increase in endogenous glucose production. Um, so. So dapagliflozin demonstrated this, um, and uh, as did empagliflozin. Um, and this is uh, attributed largely to a, a stimulation of, of uh, glucagon, as well as the increased lipolysis that I mentioned on the previous slide. Um, so um, speaking of glucagon, um, SGLT2 uh, uh, transporters were recently discovered to be on alpha cells of the pancreas, 
Um, and these are the cells that secrete glucagon. And in the study, they were actually demonstrated to participate in the alpha cell glucose sensor mechanism. Um, it, uh, in this picture, um, this is an immunofluorescent stain. Um, so the first panel shows uh, the glucagon stain. And the second panel shows the SGLT2 receptor uh, or transporter stain. And then the third panel shows a um, superimposed image. So they superimpose uh, pretty much on top of each other. Um, and, and so they, uh, in the study, they showed uh, that inhibition of the SGLT2 on the human islet cells in vitro lead it, uh, leads to uh, increased glucagon secretion. So SGLT2 inhibitors are actually alpha cell secretagogues of glucagon. Um, as far as the weight loss effect, um, indirect calorimetry demonstrated no change in en energy expenditure. Um, and so uh, the increase in endogenous glucose production as well as the uh, no change in en energy expenditure both kind of limit how much weight loss can be expected from the SGLT2 inhibitors. Okay, let's move on to cardiovascular effects. So uh, in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine uh, this past November, um, there was a, a study published, the EMPA-REG outcome study, uh, which was uh, a, a randomized double-blind uh, placebo-controlled uh, trial of empagliflozin um, two different doses versus placebo. The primary outcome was cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And they studied 7,000 patients over 48 months. Um, the, their patients were uh, type 2 diabetics who had a high cardiovascular risk uh, and established cardiovascular disease. Um, BMI had to be less than 45 uh, and GFR greater than 30. And uh, they either uh, could not be on any glucose-lowering therapy for at least 12 weeks or on a stable glucose regimen for that amount of time. So um, uh, for, the, for the primary outcome, um, as well as the other outcomes, which were the death from car cardiovascular causes, death from any cause, and hospitalization for heart failure, uh, the uh, SGLT2 inhibitor had a significant decrease in the mortality. Um, so, um, and, and this was despite um, a somewhat modest improvement in uh, hemoglobin A1C. So it didn't seem to be uh, related um, entirely to improvement in diabetes control. And so additionally, there was a small reduction in weight and waist circumference, decrease in uh, blood pressure, uh, and uh, despite a slight increase in LDL, there was a slight increase in HDL. Um, so why? Why is there this cardiovascular benefit? Um, not totally clear yet, but it doesn't seem to be fully uh, related to the glucose control. Maybe it's related to the decrease in, in, um, in visceral adiposity um, and other possible explanations, maybe related to the blood pressure improvement, um, maybe uh, altered arterial stiffness, improved cardiac function, decreased cardiac oxygen demand, uh, some cardiorenal effects. Um, there's the osmotic diuresis of um, sodium. Um, and as I mentioned in one of my first slides, uh, there's SGLT2 receptors on the heart, so maybe they're involved somehow. Um, next question, can you use uh, SGLT2 inhibitors on in chronic kidney disease? After all, they involve the kidney uh, for their function. So uh, EMPA-REG also did a, a renal trial. Um, this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study. They, it was basically the same population that I just discussed, um, except um, they, they limited the, the kidney function and they stratified it according to CK, CKD stage 2, 3, and 4. Um, for the stage 3 and 4 CKD, they, they didn't bother using the lower dose of the SGLT2 inhibitor because uh, the assumption was that um, it, it just wouldn't reach a therapeutic effect in the renal tubule, uh, a therapeutic level. 
uh, and the patients couldn't be on dialysis or have had a renal transplant. And so the primary endpoint here was uh, improvement of or change of A1C from baseline at 24 weeks, and they also looked at that change at 52 weeks. Um, so uh, here, here's the findings for the primary endpoint at 24 weeks, and you can see that the hemoglobin A1C did significantly improve uh, in both CKD stage two and CKD stage three. So there was there was response. Um, and then at 52 weeks, um, they still maintained that that response pretty well in both both of these. However, um, in CKD stage four. Unfortunately, um, didn't work. So let's talk about the safety. A few key points here. Um, first of all, um, just for everyone's edification, it's pregnancy category C, so they don't know what the effects are. Um, the common side effects, um, dehydration, um, for obvious reasons, uh, if there's even though uh, you know I made the point that hypoglycemia isn't really a concern with SGLT2 inhibitors, um, if the patient is already on insulin or sulfonylurea, adding on the SGLT2 inhibitor will decrease um, is expected to decrease the requirement of of each of those other medications. So that could lead to hypoglycemia. So watch out for that. Um, some more uh, more. Uh, uh, serious side uh, side effects. Uh, I guess these aren't too too serious, but something to keep in mind. Um, more common um, uh, urinary tract infections. Although um, you know the, the upper urinary tract infections haven't been an issue, like pyelonephritis, that that doesn't tend to happen um, in association with SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, and then uh, general yeast infections. I have a patient in clinic that uh, that did develop this adverse effect with recurring yeast infections, but she insists on staying on the SGLT2 inhibitor and would rather take um, uh, fluconazole to treat her yeast infections because the SGLT2 inhibitor is working so well for her. So just to put some context. And then uh, euglycemic ketoacidosis is a more serious side effect that I'm going to talk more about. Um, there's some question about whether um, SGLT2 inhibitors might impact um, bone uh, bone quality and um, uh, the possibility of bladder cancer. Uh, there's been anecdotal reports of that, very rare. Um, but for now, uh, it's recommended that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors not be used in patients with known bladder cancer. Okay, so now let's talk about the, this diabetic ketoacidosis issue. Um, it's pretty well publicized, and it, it's a concern. Um, so in uh, May 2015, the FDA issued a warning of this risk. It is a rare adverse event. It's still limited to just case reports. Um, and uh, the, probably the scariest part of it is that um, the, these cases of DKA uh, present euglycemically. So it's, it's easy to not have that on your radar uh, in a patient. Um, and it has occurred in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, that said, it, it really only has happened mostly in context with you know, extreme conditions, surgery, illness, extensive exercise like marathons, um, you know, things like that. Potential mechanisms for that. So, um, so a decrease in insulin levels or insulin requirement increases lipolysis, as I demonstrated with the free fatty acid graph. Um, this, this is really mostly an issue in uh, people who are insulin deficient in some way. Um, and then, uh, then also uh, SGLT2 inhibitors increase glucagon secretion, which then stimulates hepatic ketogenesis. Um, and then fluorescein uh, was observed to increase tubular reabsorption of acetoacetate. They didn't measure beta-hydroxybutyrate back then. Um, and uh, we don't know if that's true of the um, SGLT2 inhibitors of the modern day, um, but if it is true, 
um, the urine ketone screening that we sometimes give for our, our type 1 diabetics, uh, that may be misleading. Um, so we, we don't know if that happens with the SGLT2 inhibitors. <clears throat> so uh, inhibiting uh, sodium co-transport can also uh, increase the electrochemical gradient across the renal tubule, which can re uh, increase the reabsorption of uh, the ketone bodies. Um, what does this mean practically? So, so as I mentioned, the majority of the cases involve uh, an underlying degree of insulin deficiency. So that would include your type 1 diabetics, um, your adults who develop type 1 diabetes later in life, which is called LADA, and uh, also your long-standing type 2 diabetics who have burned out their pancreases, and so they they're insulin deficient from that. Um, most cases present with the typical signs and symptoms except for hyperglycemia. So if you have a patient who has nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, uh, dyspnea malaise uh, after, you know, shortly after being started on an SGLT2 inhibitor or you know, in the setting of, you know, of some extremis, then just keep that on your radar if they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, so have a low threshold for checking uh, urine, plasma, ketones, uh, even if they're euglycemic. So uh, with these case reports coming out, this FDA warning, um, ACE um, met um, and, uh, and discussed you know, what to do about this risk. Um, so their consensus is that you know, despite this risk, the, the risk-benefit ratio still is in favor for um, continuing to use the SGLT2 inhibitors because of how well they work and the other um, risk being uh, minimal. Um, they recommend stopping uh, the SGLT2 inhibitor at least a day before, you know, elective surgery, invasive procedures, um, you know, anticipated marathons, things like that. Uh, if there's an emergency, um, stop the medication as soon as you can. Um, in type 2 diabetics, they don't recommend routinely measuring the blood ketones. Um, but uh, if, the, if, the, um, if the patient is symptomatic, then yes, uh, particularly the blood ketones. Um, and then uh, SGLT2 uh, inhibitor uh, taking patients um, should also avoid excess uh, alcohol intake and um, ketogenic diets uh, because so uh, excess alcohol intake can lead to alcoholic ketoacidosis and uh, you don't want to be contributing any more than necessary to this ketogenesis that's occurring with um, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so. Uh, SGLT2 inhibitors are not currently approved for use in type 1 diabetes, um, but they do encourage ongoing study uh, of their use uh, in type 1 diabetics because of how well they work. <laughs> um, uh, in, in, the, in those consensus guidelines, they proposed um, trying to use a lower SGLT2 inhibitor dose uh, for these patients and maybe uh, not uh, preemptively decreasing their uh, insulin regimen um, and just waiting to see how, how the patient responds before cutting down the insulin dose um, and to also maintain their carbohydrate intake. Um, we do still uh, consider SGLT2 inhibitors in you know, tough cases in type 1 diabetics, uh, but just know that, that that's an off-label use and it should be taken with a lot of caution. Uh, and um, the, all these recommendations were um, suggested for the type 2 diabetics who um, have long-standing diabetes and are insulin dependent. Okay, so now let's talk about um, this possible effect on bone quality. So this arose because um, of the FDA, in reviewing you know the data that was coming out of the pharmaceutical companies in the face uh, in the in the pre-market pre, uh, trials, um, that there was um, some effects on the bone mineral density of the lumbar spine and total hip. Uh, at least with canagliflozin, and this was seen on DEXA scan and uh, qualitative CT. But interestingly, there was no change in the bone mineral density at the distal forearm or the femoral neck. 
Um, th there was also uh, some increase in bone fractures during the second year of therapy, not the first year. But uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, conflicting data on this, and so the, que the question still remains, is this risk a real one, and what would be the mechanism? Some possible explanations. Um, the SGLT2 inhibitors increase serum phosphate um, through uh, increased tubular reabsorption. Um, in vitro, uh, elevated phosphate uh, levels increase FGF23, um, but we don't know if SGLT2 inhibitors actually do that. Um, there may be an increase in PTH levels. Um, the, the same uh, FDA committee, uh, you know, studied uh, uh, or, or, you know, reviewed literature um, coming out of these pharmaceutical companies where uh, cannabiglyphosin seemed to increase the PTH level by 7.9 percent, but uh, and this uh, uh, the standard deviation was pretty high. But again, conflicting data, increase in bone turnover, also conflicting data. Uh, and then there remains the fact that diabetics also have impaired bone quality for, uh, for reasons other than SGLT2 inhibitors. Mm -hmm. um, there's the diabetes-associated bone fragility, renal osteodystrophy for those who have impaired renal function, and many patients with type 2 diabetes are postmenopausal, things like that. Um, the good news, though, is uh, there doesn't seem to be an adverse effect on bone mineral density in the setting of normal to mildly impaired renal function. Um, uh, and here's, here's the data that the Emperag renal trial found, showed in their study that I talked about earlier. So um, there didn't seem to be any difference in bone fractures between the placebo and the empagliflozin groups. Um, Okay, so to, to uh, give you a lot of information, uh, I just wanted to summarize the clinically relevant practical points. So, um, so the advantages of SGLT2 inhibitors, um, convenient dosing, you just give it once a day orally. Um, it has a pretty robust impact on hemoglobin A1C, um, and this is related to both glucosuria, uh, improved insulin sensitivity, and um, improved beta cell function. Um, there's a low risk of hypoglycemia, and uh, hypoglycemia is really only a concern if you're adding it on to insulin or sulfonylurea. Uh, it's weight negative, um, and that uh, is related to a decrease largely of fat mass. And there's a beneficial effect on cardiovascular mortality. And they also work to some degree in, in um, uh, CKD stage 2 and 3. Disadvantages, um, there's that increased risk of DKA. Um, it is rare, but it is a serious side effect. Um, and it can be difficult to recognize because it happens euglycemically. But you can mitigate that risk by um, exercising caution in certain subsets of diabetics um, who are particularly at risk for DKA. Um, and unfortunately, the, uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors don't work with a GFR less than 30. But, uh, but that said, um, the, the guidelines say not to prescribe it for a GFR less than 60 uh, currently. But, you know, off-label, you can consider it. Um, the weight loss effect is modest, um, uh, and it might have a negative effect on bone, but we don't know that for sure. And then there's that mildly increased risk of UTIs and general mycotic infections. Some future directions, um, uh, seeing if SGLT1 inhibition might be able to be harnessed without the GI side effects. Um, we need to study more th these effects on bone quality and uh, more study on their use in type 1 diabetics. Um, so we love the kidneys, and we love the fact that they let us have this uh, wonderful medication for use in diabetes. Thank you for your attention. Well, this was a really nice uh, review of this. Uh, I thought we all felt like we wish we knew this much about every medication we, uh, we use. So any questions out there? Yep. That was a tremendous amount of information that <laughs> constructed so beautifully. Thank you. It went down really easy. Great, great. Thank you for that. Um, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on the cardiovascular benefits. It was 
It's hard for me to. Oh sure, let me let me revisit that slide. The, the uh, absolute um, uh, benefits, the absolute risk reduction for specific uh, endpoints, mm -hmm. because we're always, particularly in this field, saddled with this uh, problem of. The A1C is lowered uh, statistically, but whether it's clinically meaningful uh, has always been a little elusive, particularly for the second, third, fourth line drugs. So, mm -hmm. so, so, uh, so just to give you an idea, so it's a little bit small there. So the, the hazard ratio of 0 0.86, um, so, uh, so the, that translates to um, a, a relative risk reduction. Um, if you subtract 0 0.86 from 1, that would be the degree of relative risk reduction of the particular, the particular outcome. So in this case, it was cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke together. And, and absolute risk reduction? Uh, the absolute... I don't know. It's like about 2% oh. maybe on that slide. Oh, right here, yeah. 14% yeah. of the risk for the patients for over five years are going to be huge, but mm -hmm. 2 to 4% are yeah. in a high risk group. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That was perfect. I really um, enjoyed that. Uh, I just um, have a zillion questions, but I'll follow up. Focus just on gout. So, okay. So, uh, non steroidals, do they interact with this uh, drug and are they contraindicated? And um, the other sort of part of that is syndrome X or the metabolic uh, syndrome has hyperuricemia. Nobody really understands why they're so frequently hyperuricemic. Is there any data on these drugs in hyperuricemia? Um, not that I came across in my literature search, um, and to my knowledge, they, uh, they shouldn't interact with um, non-steroidals. Susan, that was great. Thank you. I didn't know that um, these agents are glucagon secretagogues, so I'm wondering about the combination therapy with metformin to diminish the effect of hepatic well, you know, a lot, a lot of these studies were done as uh, add-ons to metformin. So, um, you know, I, I don't know that we know specifically the contribution to the uh, glucagon secretion, but... Um, In your clinical practice, do most of your patients take in combination with Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so if the they can. Guys, the real guys are getting involved, so there's Martin and there's um, Martha. So. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, can you repeat that? I'm sorry. The effect of sodium on sodium excretion of blood pressure. I mean, so the sodium excretion of seven, losing 70 grams of glucose yes. is this similar to getting 70 grams of mannitol a day? And then the other question is so this is mannitol doesn't inhibit the sodium transport, so this seems to be like a great uh, proximal tubular diabetic. Right, right. Uh, actually, that's a great point, and um, I did come across uh, the fact that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors um, cause an osmotic diuresis, and you're right, it could be related to the glucose uh, as well as the sodium that is staying in the, in the tubule. Has it been quantified? I mean, how much is it? Is it um, so, I mean, how does it compare to, like, other I, I don't think that's been done, unfortunately, but that's a great idea. What? I just have a comment. Um, in our practice, we see a lot of diabetics in our renal practice, and a lot of people with GFR is less than 30. I'm actually seeing these, these, these agents described pretty widely in the community for people with GFR under 30, in combination with many, many other anti-diabetic drugs and sometimes as well. Okay. And, you know, these patients are convinced that, they, that this has helped them. But I just wonder how you would approach that. I mean, from from the information that I've seen, um, you know, I I would doubt that the SGLT2 inhibitor is having any effect on the patient that has a GFR less than 30. So they're probably taking a medication that they don't need to be on. <laughs> um, can you comment on their use in older adults? Because with the data that you presented, mm -hmm. while there's loss of fat mass, you know, when you looked at the bar graphs, there was you know, relatively more than that usual 75, 25 
you know, percent of a ratio of you lose weight. Yes. 75 fat, 25 muscle. Right. Particularly with the impact of uh, Right. I mean, that's that's an excellent point. Uh, when I saw that uh, decrease in in uh, muscle lean, lean muscle mass, that that was a little bit concerning to me as well. Um, I I kind of attributed at least part of that to just uh, weighing less, but you know, it, it seems like it's out of proportion to to that a bit. So that might be a, a concern to take into account if you're considering using the SGLT2 inhibitor in like a frail older adult. Um, however, um, I think the SGLT2 inhibitors might be a good choice in an older adult because of the lower risk of hypoglycemia, although um, you would also consider the, the possibility of you know, volume depletion, and, but that, that could easily be remedied by encouraging fluid intake. Yeah. For primary care docs, can you put this in the context of some of the other medications that are available to us? Um, sure. Uh, in context, how? What do you mean? Um, in, in the context of a um, middle-aged um, type 2 diabetic overweight who, um, despite usable amounts of supplementary real and metformin, mm -hmm. um, is still running a hemoglobin A1C of 9.0. Okay, um, so uh, first of all, um, let me just mention that um, in the clinic, we face a little bit of a barrier to prescribing the SGLT2 inhibitors right now um, because they, being so new on the market, they're still under patent and uh, they often come with a really high copay, even if they are covered by insurance that um, uh, many of our patients just can't afford. Um, and so sometimes um, it becomes not an option, even though you, we would like to use one. Um, so, um, uh, but you know, for for that like cost aside, um, that patient does sound like a good candidate for trying an SGLT2 inhibitor um, to see if you can bring down the the um, hemoglobin A1C and have a weight negative effect. Um, and possibly uh, get him, uh, him or her off of um, the uh, sulfonylurea, which is probably contributing to weight gain or weight maintenance <laughs> um, and possibly um, hypoglycemia risk. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. Any questions? Well, this was a terrific talk. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>